The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're continuing our study in hermeneutics, which is principles of interpretation. Today we're going to look at prophecy. Simply defined, prophecy is the speaking of events before they occur, clearly demonstrating God's sovereign control over the course of human history. In fact, biblical prophecy is really the only certain way of of our knowing the future, and fortunately it's absolutely certain. Closely related to prophecy is eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrine of last things, and how you understand actually the principles of interpretation that you employ to interpret prophecy is going to determine your eschatological position, so we'll talk more about that as we go. <clears throat> Zook lists, lists several different things that prophecy accomplishes. One is it comforts. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, therefore comfort one another with these words. What, what's the context there? What is the prophecy that he's talking about that's supposed to be a comfort? Okay, but more specifically, 1 Thessalonians 4. His coming? Okay, it's related to his coming for sure. He's talking... More, more explicitly about the rapture, right? The rapture of church saints. Part of the issue there is that <clears throat> it's been a number of years since Christ uh, went back to heaven. They're looking for the rapture any day in their own lifetimes. Even Paul was looking for it. And there had been believers that had passed away in the interim. And they thought, well, they're actually looking for the kingdom of God, too, as, as Christ returns. And they thought, what about these folks? Are they going to miss out? on the return of Christ? And Paul says, no, they're actually going to rise first when Christ comes, and then we who are alive and remain. He says, we who are alive and remain. So I think he's putting himself in that group, thinking that Christ is going to come in his own lifetime. We don't know exactly when he's going to come, but the, he really set an example for us, too, to expect Christ to come at any time. But that was the comfort was for these loved ones who had died in Christ they weren't going to miss out on the kingdom. They were actually going to precede those that are alive at the time that Christ returns. And they would be resurrected. It was about resurrection. Secondly, prophecy calms. Uh, I suppose every generation thinks this, but we're living in some very unusual and tumultuous times right now. And yet we know the future, right? Not in detail. We don't know a lot of things about the future, but we know what the Word of God tells us about the future. And... It's the most important thing that we could know about the future, about where things in this life are headed. So in spite of the turmoil in which we live, we have great hope because God has already revealed the future to us. Think about if we didn't have that, what a difference that would make in our own walk with the Lord each day. Prophecy also converts. I'm going to read. Uh, these are a little bit long passages, but they're really good passages. And listen to how many times... Peter makes reference to the prophets and listen to what the result was in both of these messages. You can follow along in your own Bibles if you want to. This is Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. This is right after he had healed a man who was lame from birth. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Remember, he's, he's proclaiming here largely to a Jewish audience right there in the temple precinct. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. He's using the healing of the man to proclaim a gospel message to this audience. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking about the fact that they had acted to crucify Christ just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Of course, he's talking about Old Testament prophets 
in that case. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the, until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Even there, you can hear that Peter is expecting Christ to come back. He's calling on the people to repent in light of his coming return, and he's pointing back to the holy prophets to, to vindicate the fact that Christ did have to suffer and die. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to whom you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward, also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So that was the bulk of his message. And then we read in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So that's just one example of a prophetic kind of proclamation that converted people. Here's another one from Acts 17 where Paul is in Athens on Mars Hill, beginning in verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So Athens, of course, was a city full of idolatry. They had all kinds of temples and gods. And just in case they missed one, they made one to an unknown God. And Paul uses that as a launching point uh, to proclaim his God, who was unknown to them, and again proclaim the gospel. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all, gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, and that's what their gods would have been made of, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because now, up to now, he's basically talked about everything that God has done in the past. Now he's moving towards the future. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. We see the, that kind of reaction to the Word of God as it's proclaimed. It's the same reaction ever since, right? Some hear and sneer in unbelief. Others believe and are converted. Prophecy cleanses. And particularly when, when we talk about it cleansing, we're talking about the fact that the hope of Christ's return is a purifying influence on us. That's what John says in 1 John 2. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears in the future, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Finally, prophecy clarifies. Again, it, it informs us of where the world, where history is headed. Uh, we've already have the past recorded for in, in Scripture all the way back to the beginning of the heavens and earth. 
and we have it all the way to the beginning or to the recreation of the heavens and the earth in the closing chapters of Revelation. So uh, I think about the fact, the difference, and, and I think you do have to think about it and reflect on it some, that that makes in our lives compared to an unbeliever who doesn't believe the Bible, who doesn't believe even in prophecy, and they don't know where time or life is headed, and we do. We have revelation about what's going to happen beyond the grave for us as believers, and ultimately revelation in a complete redemption of the heavens and the earth. Significance of prophecy. Uh, Andre, I think you asked me last week what percentage of the Bible is prophetic, and I said more probably than what was accurate, but uh, at least a quarter of the Bible was prophecy when it was originally written. Some of it has already been fulfilled, and some of it still awaits to be fulfilled, but it, obviously it, it unfolds the plan and purpose of God going forward. And how prophecy, prophecy is to be interpreted is a crucial dividing line between major systems of theology, uh, particularly dispensationalism and covenantalism. We want to talk about that a little bit. But first, let's look at some crucial questions that divide interpreters about prophecy in particular. How literal should I be in my interpre interpretation of Old Testament prophecy? That's a real question. How literal should we be? That's a good answer. We use the same hermeneutic to interpret prophecy as we do any other portion of Scripture. Now, again, prophecy probably has more symbols and apocalyptic visions, uh, and we have to take that into account. But we've also talked about how those things and figures of speech are uh, part of language, and we interpret that accordingly. So we, the answer is how literal should I be? Very literal, just like we are in the way that we interpret portions, other portions of Scripture, and just like we are, we do, and when we interpret anything. How does the New Testament quote or allude to the Old Testament prophecies? Now, that's a really good question, and there's multiple ways that you can answer that question. We've looked at that some already, but this is a big dividing line between covenantalists and dispensationalists. Covenantalists would say, "Well, look at the way the New Testament writers." talk about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's not literal. It's something less than literal. Or it's something that we have to have New Testament revelation to understand what those Old Testament prophets were saying. And I wouldn't agree with that approach. I think that the Old Testament prophets could be understood in their original context, maybe not to the fullest detail that we have now at this point in time, but I think you have to interpret those Old Testament prophecies in their own context first and then see how the New Testament writer is using them. Um, and it is sometimes different from the Old Testament context. We've talked about that in Matthew's Gospel in particular, but how you answer that question is going to ha have a huge impact on how you interpret Old Testament prophecy. What about the silence of the New Testament regarding Israel's restoration to the Promised Land? That's a big dividing line again between covenantalists and dispensationalists. We believe there's a distinct future for Israel. We believe that all those land promises, and there's a ton of them, in the Old Testament have not yet been fulfilled. Certainly Israel's back in the land now, but they're not back in there in the conditions that the Old Testament prophets speak about them, where they're not being afraid of anybody around them, and they're the head of the nations instead of the tail. So what's the answer to that question? Why doesn't the New Testament speak about the restoration of Israel to its land? Okay. It's talking about the church. The New Testament is a whole, it's largely addressing a whole different group of people. And my question would be to somebody who asked this question to me is, why does it need to? Old Testament is two-thirds of our Bible. It's full of promises of restoration to Israel. So even when you ask that question, you betray a certain attitude toward the Old Testament that I would say is improper. The New Testament, and it does talk about the restoration of Israel in places, 9 through 11 in the Gospels in particular. It doesn't speak about the land, but I don't think it has to because Old Testament's already spoken on that subject. And speaking to the restoration of Israel implicitly, puts them back in the land if you understand the new covenant with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That's right. It, 
the New Testament writers assume that as you read their works, you're already thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament. It was their Bible. It was the Bible of the apostles. And you just got to look at the whole of Scripture as the total revelation of God. You don't say that the Old Testament is just types and shadows, and now we have the full fulfillment of the New Testament. That's largely what the covenantalists do. And they, they jump from where we are right now to a new heavens and new earth, and they just don't see a place for, the, for Israel being restored to the land. Even though Israel has been restored to her land, it's not the land that God originally promised. There should have been a lot more That's that, right. they never, that they never conquered and stuff like that, and especially now with the way the countries have been divided. There's, there's going to be a lot more land that will belong to Israel. That's a good point. Those boundaries are spelled out in the Old Testament. They've never fully uh, possessed that land, and again, they've never fully, they've never possessed it with the conditions that the prophets lay out, peace and prosperity and not fearing their enemies, those kinds of things. So we very much believe that there is a future restoration for the nation of Israel. What does the teaching of the Gospels and the book of Revelation contribute to the type of fulfillment we should expect for Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom? Is the kingdom Jesus taught only a reign in the heart of believers today? Um, well, let me, let me read just a couple of passages out of the Gospels. Uh, one is Gabriel's birth announcement to Mary in Luke chapter 1. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He'll be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Well, obviously, Mary and others of that day would have understood the throne of his father David as being an earthly throne over the nation of Israel, just like it was throughout the Old Testament. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. In another instance, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is responding to a question about, what about us, Lord? We've, we've left everything to follow you. And he says to them, truly I say to you, that you, have, you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, again, that's the throne of David on the earth, you shall also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Christ obviously anticipated a future kingdom, I would argue, on the earth. I guess the covenantists, well, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Some of them would say the kingdom of God is in heaven, and others would agree that it's on the earth, but it's actually happening right now through the church. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5, <clears throat> this is the 24 elders singing, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So it's not talking about a reign in heaven. It's talking about on the earth. And of course, the passage that, <clears throat> the classic passage on the reign of Christ is in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look at the way that different systems understand this passage, but let me read it first. Uh, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 4, uh, down through verse 10. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't think I have it all the way through 10, but the whole context is Revelation 21 through 10, and it's, <clears throat> it's clearly on the earth, right? Because in 19, he's already returned to the earth. <coughs> Satan has been bound so he can no longer deceive the nations, which is on the earth. And now these thrones are going to be set up so that believers can rule with Christ again on the earth. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. If you go back in the preceding context, that they are the armies that come back with Christ at his return. I believe that's church saints. That's believers that have already been resurrected and been with Christ in heaven uh, through the tribulation period. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. Who is that? The 
the, the non-followers of Antichrist. That's right. So this is talking specifically about people that were martyred during the tribulation period or people that refused the mark of the beast. That's separate from church saints that have been raptured already. But these folks, too, the ones that refused the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, they came to life and will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, Covenantalists and amillennials in particular want to say that the thousand years is not to be understood literally there. They have to say that, right? Because if they're going to say that the millennium is now, it's been well over a thousand years since Christ uh, came the first time. Uh, there's no reason not to take the thousand years literally, just like all the other numbers in Revelation. All right, so let's look at the different systems, and there's basically three, of how people understand the millennium as it's described in that passage that we just read, Revelation chapter 20. They all start with the cross as a reference point. And they all have to do with, uh, they're defined as with, with reference to Christ's return. In other words, post-millennialism sees the millennium as coming after the return of Christ. Uh, amillennialism says basically there's, I don't know if I said that, yeah. The return of Christ comes after the millennium is what I meant to say. So it has to do with his return in relation to the millennium. So they would say, let's just go ahead and show it, that through the spread of the gospel right now, the world is being Christianized and ultimately will be thoroughly Christian, and then Christ comes. Now, you would think, who would believe that? I mean, especially at the point in history that we live now, we've had two world wars recently. Uh, you know, in the 20th century, how in the world is the gospel, is the world being Christianized by the gospel? But, and for a long time after the Second World War, postmillennialism kind of went out of favor, but it has made a comeback. There are people that still believe this and embrace it and proclaim it. I think it's a very hard case to make. Amillennialism, based, I'm sorry, you got the new heavens and new earth after Christ's return and after the world is thoroughly Christianized. The other really strong argument against this, you have to completely change the way that the book of Revelation flows because clearly Christ comes back in chapter 19 and then he rules and reigns on the earth in chapter 20. They say that you start over in chapter 20. It's looking at the same period of time and you got to go back and start over. What do they say happens at the second coming between that and the new heavens and the new earth? Not much. Uh, you know, he comes back, and then the, the new heavens and new earth. There's, they have. There's things that they can't explain. For example, you know, Satan's released at the end of the thousand years. They don't really have an answer for that. But there's no, uh, there's no land promise or no distinction between the church and Israel. He, he basically comes back. I think they would see a judgment, the great white throne judgment uh, of all people, and then new heavens, new earth. And, you know, to be fair, I'm giving you my understanding of what all mills and post mills teach. And I've read about that. I, I try to be as fair as I can on that. Is there's no substitute for reading one of their own works. And that way you can get a full explanation. I, you know, obviously not able to do it to that detail here. But uh, I would encourage you to do that sometime. Get, there's a guy named, I think it's Anthony Hokuma, that wrote a book called The Bible in the Future. And he does what I'm doing. He goes through the different systems of millennial understanding, but he takes the all-millennial view and he gives an explanation as to why. Uh, Lorraine Baitner is a very famous post-millennial guy. Who knows better now? He's, he's dead. But uh, he's written a book called, I think it's just called The Millennium. But I would encourage you, if you're, if you're interested in this, and you should be, to read one of their own works. Uh, there's other works that you can do that, that evaluate all the different systems, but just see what their arguments are in more detail. There's a book called The Meaning of the Millennium, and I really like this format. Each one of the camps presents their view and then the other ones critique it, and you can see why they don't accept certain things. It's really illuminating to see the, uh, uh, how each one both proposes and defends his position and goes after the other ones. What's the name of 
the meaning of the millennium. Uh, Klaus, I think it's got a different name now, but if you're interested in a copy, I can get you one. So amillennialism basically says there is no thousand-year reign of Christ to be expected in the future. They would say we're in the millennium right now. They would say Satan is bound right now. And they say he's bound in the sense of not being able to deceive the nations in a way that he was able to before, before the gospel came, if that makes sense. How can <clears throat> rationally thinking people think that? I mean, <laughs> no, I'm glad you said that for me. And no, 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 because it's obvious with everything, I mean, anybody can see, that the children here can see that evil is alive and well on planet Earth. I mean, Satan is not bound by any stretch of the imagination. Exactly. You can not only see it by what we see on the earth, but Scripture itself clearly warns us, right? Satan prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. So they qualify it and say, well, yeah, we agree that he's, it's almost like he's on a leash. He can only do so much, but he can't deceive the nations the way that he could before the gospel came. I agree with you, Andre. I don't think... That leash stretches around the globe. It does. It's a long, long <laughs> leash. It is. They also, uh, I need to do uh, some more research on this myself, but it seems to me that they would have to say that both the millennium is happening now and the seven years of tribulation because they don't see that as something future either. So obviously the church does go through tribulation right now, but <clears throat> it's not the ones that are described. So they're going through at the same time? It seems to me that you'd have to. Yeah, but seven years is not a thousand years. It's when not. Did, when did it? Well, they, they probably don't take the seven years as literal either. Right, because they they certainly don't take the thousand as literal, <clears throat> and there are different brands of amillennialism. Some would say that this is only talking about the rule of God and Christ in heaven over the saints that are already there. Others would say that it's on the earth. Do they say also that um, believers are reigning? You know how you so like believers are reigning now. Also yep. I think they would have to say that. I know that they say that we're reigning in a sense, uh, but I would say not the sense that the Bible describes. You know, you could see where they would make the argument, well, we have power, we have a certain authority in the sense that we don't have to sin the way that we did before we became believers. I mean, like, uh, I would imagine the argument from, like, Ephesians being seated at, with yep. Christ and... Yeah, it's a spiritualizing of prophecy in particular to make it work in the present age. Now, the biggest difference between post-mill and on-mill is post-mill is much more optimistic about the spread of the gospel. There are also, post-mills are very keen on getting believers into positions of power, whether it be government, education, medicine, because they feel like that's necessary to help with the takeover, if you will. It's not going to happen. The kingdom is not going to come until the king comes, and uh, that's why we're pre-mill. All right, so premillennialism then believes that, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So in amillennialism, the second coming ends the present age. There's a general judgment. There's not, a, you know, separate judgments. We would say there's a separate judgment for believers at the Bama Seat of Christ during the seven years of tribulation they would put all the judgments at the end, and then new heavens, new earth. Now we look at pre-mill. The church age lasts until the fullness of Gentiles comes in. That's what Paul says in Romans. And then there's a rapture where all the believers on the earth uh, are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't come all the way to the earth at that point in time. There is seven years of tribulation on the earth, and the whole purpose of the rapture is to get believers out of there so that they don't have to undergo the wrath of God. That's what Revelation says. It says, poured out on the earth. This is a fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. It's also a fulfillment of all the prophecies that speak about the day of the Lord. Well, not all of them, because there are days of the Lord that have already taken place during the Old Testament times. But this is the ultimate day of the Lord. It's the one that Paul also talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Then we have the return of Christ with the saints that have already been caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We have 
another resurrection of Old Testament saints that takes place at this time, is along with the tribulation saints. And then we believe in a thousand year reign of Christ on this present earth. Israel restored back to the land, and all those Old Testament prophecies that weren't fulfilled at Christ's first coming are fulfilled during this thousand year period. Again, I think John, as he writes Revelation, you know, he refers back to the Old Testament an awful lot. But he, he assumes that you're familiar with all this. And I would argue he's assuming that you're f taking the prophecies literally that speak about Israel's restoration. Just about every one of the latter prophets speak about the restoration of Israel. They speak about their, her sin and her punishment by God on the one hand, but her ultimate restoration. The thousand-year reign of Christ on the present earth, doesn't God fix the earth a little bit? He does. Because there, a lot of stuff goes on during the tribulation. That's right. Damage, a lot of yep. destruction. There's a lot of cleanup that has to be done after the tribulation, and there's just topographical changes beside that, and the prophets speak about those things. That's a good point. So, so the church age is like when the last Gentile, like is saved. When the rapture is when the seven seals are broken, or is that the seven-year tribulation? That's the seven-year tribulation. So what, what then is the rapture? Is that just when all those people that are saved are going to So it's a good question. That is what happens at the rapture, and that's what... We, we believe the rapture and the day of the Lord are both imminent. That means that no other event has to happen before those events happen. And the rapture actually kicks off the day of the Lord. So all the believers are taken out. There's a sense in which the, the indwelling spirit in the church worldwide is taking out its restraining influence. The Antichrist is revealed, and that's when the tribulation period starts. So both rapture and the day of the Lord, as it's described in the book of Revelation, occur what I have labeled rapture there. Doesn't, yes, they're imminent, but doesn't, um, don't certain, still certain things still have to happen prior to that? Doesn't there have to be a, a, an antichrist who actually is revealed? I mean, several have been, many have been during, during history, you know, anybody who's against Christ is an antichrist, but the antichrist doesn't have to be revealed, doesn't he? Doesn't there need to be like a, a major war in the Middle East that he will come and make peace and all that for all this to happen? So you could take that from Second Thessalonians 2 and the way that it's translated that uh, the day of the Lord will not come until the great apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. We actually talk about this, but you were gone uh, to France. The, I believe that's a mistranslation there. It's, it's what's called an ellipsis where you have to supply the verb uh, it's not in the text, and you should supply it from the previous verse so that it reads something like, the day of the Lord is not present unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. I believe both of those things happen within the day of the Lord. So no, I don't think there is something else until that precedes the rapture. And I think that's why Paul was looking for it in his own day. The believers were then. It's what we're looking for, too. We don't believe that there is something else that has to occur. You know, we know the temple has to get rebuilt at some point, but I think all that happens after the rapture. I think the rapture is the next thing on God's program. And then, you know, the thousand-year reign of Christ is on this present earth, but there's ultimately a new heavens and new earth, it is a physical creation. We're not going to be floating around in the clouds singing with harps. It'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And, and God will dwell among us just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. So the curse is gone. Um, it'll be a very different kind of existence from what we know now. But there's also connections with what we know now. Tree of Life shows back up again. Um, the idea that somehow... And this is part of the argument against the millennium, too. Somehow that the material and the physical is carnal and that the spiritual is superior. Well, God made a material universe in the very beginning. And he's in the process not only of redeeming the souls of men, but also redeeming the creation that he made from the get-go. So some basic differences between these two systems. Covenantal theology is mostly post-millennial and amill, a few are pre-millennial. Um, they would say that the church didn't begin at Pentecost and went all the way back basically to the Garden of Eden. Uh, 
and you've got redeemed people and unredeemed people. And the church is all the redeemed of all ages. They would say that Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants are all completely fulfilled, and the church participates in these promised blessings of each one of these covenants by the fact that we're in Christ. In other words, the church is the new Israel. Uh, you hear that phrase a lot with them. The problem with it is it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't say anything like that. Now, you can say we're descendants of Abraham because we're justified by faith just like he was. And he was justified as a Gentile before he was circumcised. So he could be the father of both believing Gentiles and believing Jews. But we're not Israel. And every time you look up uh, the term Israel in the New Testament, I think it occurs 73 times, it's either talking about the individual named Israel in the Old Testament or the descendants, physical descendants of Abraham. There's nowhere where you can equate the church with Israel. And also throughout the, the Bible, I mean, New and Old Testament, they keep making the separation between Jews and Gentiles. That's right. Jews and Gentiles. So they're definitely, the Jews are going to be part, and even Jesus says, um, I will be I'll be the shepherd of my sheep, and then I will also get these other, other people sheep. will also be part of our, our, we will all be one flock. So That's right. There is definitely a definite differentiation between the church and Israel. That's right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Give no offense either to Jew or Gentile or the church of God. That is the threefold division that exists in humanity today. Uh, now, certainly there were Jews, Jews in the church originally, right? It was all Jewish, virtually all, at Pentecost. But over time, it's become predominantly it's Jewish believers today. Over time, though, it's become predominantly Gentile. Um, so that those, those promises, and I, I think I got this on the slide here in just a minute, the promises that were made to Israel in the beginning will be fulfilled to Israel. They haven't been transferred to anybody else. In covenantal theology, Old Testament prophecies are spiritualized and seen as fulfilled in the church. You have to spiritualize them to make them fulfilled in the church. We've talked about Ezekiel 43:48 and how it gives such a detailed description of the temple and the fact that the tribes are back in the land with their own land allotments. You've got sacrifices there. It all goes back to the original law. Uh, you can't say that that's being fulfilled today. They would say that it's either you know, spiritualizing those prophecies to make the church fulfill them, or they would say that the church, or that, I'm sorry, that the Jewish people lost those promises when they crucified their own Messiah. That's the other explanation. God says he hasn't forsaken Israel, and he won't. Dispensational theology is always premillennial. Uh, I don't I don't think there's any exception to that statement. I can't imagine there would be. The church is distinct from the nation of Israel, as we said. They do not inherit Israel's promises. We believe that the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants have begun to be fulfilled, but they'll only be completely fulfilled when Christ comes back and the promises made to Israel will be fulfilled to Israel. What is historical pre So historical pre-mail believes in a, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And, but they also believe that the, the church goes through the tribulation. So they'd be post-trib. They believe in a rapture, but they believe that it happens at the end of the seven years. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then we come right back down to the earth with him. And it's called historical pre-meal because they believe that, that was the belief of the early church fathers, historical in that sense. I, I just don't think a post-trib rapture works because Revelation talks about the fact that this is the wrath of God that's being poured out, and we've uh, there, is no there is no condemnation. We've not been chosen for wrath, but for attaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I, I think there's lots of ways that you can prove that we're going to not be here when that wrath is poured out. I'm with that 100%. But we had a pastor. In fact, one of the two pastors that taught us the fundamentals of the faith, I saw the book out there, um, he believed that we would go through, the, for some reason, that we would be going through the rapture. And he said, well, look at all the martyrs that we have today. They're being persecuted. They're being martyred. Why shouldn't we be? Yeah. And there'll be people martyred in the tribulation. There'll be people that come to faith in the tribulation, right. but that's not the church. I right. just thought, I, I think... 
I think it's a different group of people. I never bought into what he thought, but I mean, even a pastor, I mean, one of MacArthur's pastors yes. thought that way. Yeah. There's others, I mean, I'm pretty sure that John Piper is post-mail. Uh, there's other well-known people that would be pre-millennial but believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation. And, and again, I'm not diminishing the fact that the church does go through tribulation. There is tremendous persecution, being, people being killed for their faith all the time, more than we realize. Well, Jesus. That's right. That's right. But that's not the same thing as, I mean, if you, if you take the tribulation as it's described in the book of Revelation, literally at all, you've got to say, well, we're not going through that. Not right now. This is, oh, sorry, did you have a hand up? Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, so you said that the people that are left on the earth, are, but they become saved, they're not a part of the church? Yes. And so would that mean that God already has them in the Lamb Book of Lambs, or would that mean that they're added? I would say they're already there. But they just weren't a part of the church? That's right. That's right. Just because and you had Old Testament saints the same way, right? We believe that the church was born at Pentecost and ends at the rapture. Now, you've got believers back here in the Old Testament time, back during the gospel time, the time of Jesus himself, during the tribulation time. You'll have we call them tribulation saints. But that's distinct from the church. If you think about the rapture, all the believers are taken out of the world, and that's part of the reason it makes it easier for the Antichrist to do what he's going to do. There's a deluding influence that's sent, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, so that people will embrace what is false. But at the same time, as you read Revelation, the gospel is still going to be proclaimed. You've got the 144,000 that are sealed as believers, Jewish believers. So you still got God making sure his message is getting out and people believing and embracing it. But you've also got a very hardened group of people that uh, you know, start off in the tribulation as well. So this guy named John Reisinger, any of, are, is anybody familiar with the book Abraham's Four Seeds? I thought you might have read it. I, I tried to go back and find my copy. I couldn't find it. But to me, he makes a really interesting statement that I thought was worth quoting here. He's actually trying to find a mediating position between covenantalism and dispensationalism. And he says, I personally believe the New Testament scriptures make the physical land to be a type of spiritual rest and the Israelite to be a type of a true believer. The problem with that is he gives no support for that statement. He just says it. However, we would not come to that conclusion from anything in the Old Testament scriptures. If all we had was the Old Testament scriptures, it would be very easy to hold the same view of Israel and the land of Palestine as that held by dispensationalism. Well, not only do we not have anything in the Old Testament that would make that assertion, we don't have anything in the New Testament either. And the New Testament doesn't overturn the fact that God chose Israel as a special witness nation and that he will not abandon her. Nowhere in the New Testament is that overturned. Is there any example of an Old Testament promise being fulfilled in the New Testament that is different, like fundamentally different than how the Old Testament would understand it? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think so. Even if we're not talking about Israel and what's going to happen with the land, any other promise? Is there one that they could point to to say, see, like this one, you know, is different? We are applying the same principle. Yes, Matthew's gospel is full of them. So well, we've. Yes, that's true, but, but is Matthew, but he's not saying this was a promise being made. Well, he's saying that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. That's right. his introductory formula. But, but that doesn't mean that God was making a promise back there, right? But it, like, well, like I think. called my son. That's not a promise in the Old Testament that the Old Testament people would read that and say, oh, God's going to do this in the future. They were saying, oh, God did do this. That's you know what I'm saying? Yes, and th that's the way we would operate. But for the covenantalists, he looks at that and says, okay, that's a little different from the Old Testament context, but if the apostles did it, then we must be able to do it too. So they, they interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. But they can't find like a... So like when I... 
They're very explicit. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And so then they say, well, it's going to happen, but it's going to be like this instead. Or they say, we're going to get spiritual rest in the end, and that's what the land represented before. So for them, the land promises just means that we basically get to the new heavens and new earth. I don't think they have a promise that they could point to to say, see, this was fulfilled differently in our I Again, I, I think they would just point, point to, to those. those kinds of ways that the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. That's actually our lesson for next week. I know we've talked about it a good bit already. But they would point to that and say, well, see, these guys, they did the, the same thing that we're doing, so it must be all right. Mm. And my point to them is, they're under inspiration, and they're only able to do that, make those kind of connections, because they're under inspiration. If you can prove to me that you're under inspiration, which I don't think most of them would even claim, I'll accept what you say. Otherwise, you're going to have to show me from the text of Scripture why you believe that's true. And that's what bugs me about this kind of statement. Show me a text that makes the land a physical type of you know, spiritual rest, and that the Israelite is a type of a true believer. I don't really understand what he means by that. Is he talking about believing Israelites are a type of future believers in the church? I just I don't see that anywhere. So some guidelines for interpreting prophecy. Again, we follow the normal principles of historical grammatical interpretation, taking into account... Uh, use of symbols and visions like we would in any other uh, language. Note whether there are any conditions attached to the prophecy. For example, you remember in Jonah's proclamation, he says, yet 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, that sounds like an absolute thing, right? But what happens? They repent. And the f it's interesting because it doesn't say, Repent, or, or Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days. But I think the fact that they, God sent a prophet there and pronounced a coming destruction gave them an opportunity for repentance. And God is always willing to relent if you repent. So that's one case. Let me read you another one. This is a really interesting passage in Jeremiah 18. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? And remember the case there where a potter can take a piece of clay that he's been working with. If he wants to, he can just mash it all down and start all over again. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. That part, I think, is easy enough. But listen to this part. At another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. And you think, well, maybe they could use that and say, yeah, Israel didn't obey in the Old Testament. That's why God has forsaken them. The only problem with that is that the Old Testament is full of promises that God hasn't done that, despite their disobedience. They are in the covenant, exactly. Now, the generation of Israel that fulfills those promises will be one that repents and embraces Christ as their Messiah, but he won't forsake his people. You're just in a 2,000-year timeout. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Recognize that the Old Testament prophecies are often blend the two separate comings of Christ together in one passage. I'm not going to read these for a second time, but sometimes a passage will proclaim Christ's first and second comings without any gap in time. In fact, I think that was the expectation when Christ did come as a man. They thought he was going to fulfill everything at one time. And what did he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when they rejected him, that's what brought a delay in his um, sitting on the throne of David and ruling over the kingdom. So only after they rejected him did he start talking about a second coming. Finally, 
look for God's built-in interpretations. I'm sorry, that's not finally, but next to last. Uh, certain books like Daniel have uh, dreams, and then God supplies the interpretation himself, either through Daniel or through an angel. Uh, those are easy ones. And I think it's easy enough to see the, the basic storyline through the Old Testament. We're going to plan to teach Old Testament survey here in the near future. Uh, and, and I think it's extremely important. Old Testament prophets are hard and very detailed, but the basic storyline is easy enough. And uh, we want to make sure everybody gets, just comes to as good an understanding of that as you can because I think it really helps with understanding the whole plan of God and understanding the New Testament even. And that's what this is. Be familiar with the storyline that runs through the whole Bible, and that will help you know what has already been fulfilled and, and what has not yet. All right. No, that's a lot. Uh, next week, we'll look at the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Something we've talked about a lot already, but I think it'd be good to have another lesson on it. I would encourage you to reread the article I sent out two or three weeks ago now by John Walton. Uh, he deals with this issue, I think, very clearly. I'm going to send you out another chapter by a guy named Charles Dyer that deals with the definition of fulfillment as <coughs> used in Matthew's Gospel. Any other questions or comments before we close? All right. We had a good time together this morning. Worship. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have told us even the way things will go in the future and the consummation of your program. <coughs> we thank you that you've told us how things began in the middle, or sorry, at the very beginning, how we are in the middle of your plan. Uh, we want to be faithful with the revelation that you've given us to live and walk obediently, to forsake sin, and to increasingly grow in our obedience to you. We recognize that we can rejoice even through the difficulties of this life, and we know that there's plenty of them, but we, we know that you use those for your purpose and, and sanctify us in that and in your truth. So we pray as we leave today and we go to our various places through this week until you bring us back again, uh, we pray that you would just keep us mindful of Christ's coming and let that be a purifying influence on our life and just help us in all that we do to honor you. Honor you from the inside out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>